When will uh, revival come? It's a hugely important question. But maybe you're thinking, well, what the dickens is it? And uh, people go to great lengths to uh, define what revival might mean. Uh, And uh, 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 so they can, and that's fine. Uh, For me, it's this. Revival is a mighty move of God. And let me clarify that. It's a mighty move of God that does something so fundamentally profound in the church that the church cannot help herself but transform the community around. It doesn't stay in the church. It's not about the church. It's for the sake of the lost and the people all around us. One of the best definitions, I think, ever given was by Duncan Campbell, who led the Hebridean revival in 1949. And he said it's simply this, a community saturated with God. Imagine for a moment, this community, I don't mean us, I mean out there, imagine this community saturated with God. Imagine the difference. Imagine the change to London Road and Burlington Road. Imagine the change to your street or where you work, a community saturated with God. And you can begin to see why it's such an important question. Because it's not for our sake, but it's for the sake of the world. For the sake of those who are lost. It's about God's rescue plan for His world. And how much does that matter? Can you put a price on God's rescue package for this world? Can you put a price on what it means to win lost people? Well, God did when He stretched out His arms and hung on a cross and took the weight of the world on Himself and He kind of said it cost at least this much. That's how much it cost. A little while ago, I took a funeral service uh, and uh, it was uh, 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 not a Christian family, a good family, a well-known family. So the the funeral service uh, uh, was was packed out. People outside and and everywhere, as sometimes happens. And uh, they all had to file out through the single entrance door and shake my hand as they went out. And it was like as they walked out a few months ago that the Holy Spirit lit something in my heart. Uh, And as these people, they just kept on coming, there were hundreds of them, uh, shaking their hand one at a time, I became acutely aware that here are people in the main who are lost. The overwhelming majority of people are in this world without God and without hope. And that's why this is such an important question. Will revival come? It really matters. And to help us think through our response, we're going to study, as you know, this book of Malachi, the Old Testament prophet, who knew for himself the urgency with which God's people needed to be revived for the sake of the nations. In fact, that's what uh, the final phrase that Liz read to us talks about. Pointing them beyond themselves, beyond the borders of Israel. That God would be great beyond the borders of His church. That God would be great in the world and in the nation. And so as we set the scene, let's put Malachi into context. Maybe you still have it open there in front of you. and You can see uh, verse 1 of chapter 1. An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. What's an oracle when it's at home? 
An oracle is a message understood to be so important, a message that carried such weight of significance that the person who holds the message will not be able to rest or to settle unless the message is delivered. Maybe you've had something in a much smaller measure like that. You've been given a message and you know it's your job to pass it on and you're nervous that you might forget it and you cannot settle, you cannot rest until you've delivered this crucial piece of information that begins to describe what an oracle is. Also, an oracle carries with it the connotation that the person who's given you the message is so, so high in authority above you that you could not imagine or contemplate doing anything but passing that message on. Such is the, uh, the greatness of the person, the master, the ruler who gives you the message. And you'll notice that the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, the, the way of saying this is the God of heaven and earth, this is the God who is greater than all other gods, the one who always was and always will be. No greater authority could give you a word. And so Malachi says, this is an oracle. I cannot do anything but pass it on. And to claim that your words were an oracle were to put on the words that you were about to share the greatest claim. It was to say that my life depends on these words being true. God was sending a word to his people marked urgent attention required. Marked this is important. Marked this is not a circular. I tend to put those in the bin. This is not a circular. And as you read the book, you'll realize that 47 of the 55 verses are direct words from God. Handle with care. So when did Malachi bring this all-important word? Well, we need to go back probably 50, 100 years in the story of the people of Israel. There'd been a very low period uh, for God's people when they'd been their land had been taken away and they'd been taken off into exile and the city and the temple had been destroyed. But then the people under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel a good East Anglian name, uh, took some of the people back and they started the task of rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the city. But as so often is the case, they faced a little bit of opposition and apathy quickly uh, grew amongst them and the word of, and the, the move of God came to a standstill. So God raised up two other leaders, Haggai and Zechariah, who the Bible says under the power of the Holy Spirit led the people to rebuild the temple. And that's exactly what happened. And I'm not sure whether we can begin to imagine how important it was, what a magnificent moment it was when that temple was rebuilt. After years of failure and frustration, God was moving again among them and they'd been able to build the temple and God was beginning to stir their hearts. Just to give us a little bit of, uh, of understanding of how emotional, of how significant, how important it was, there are these words from Ezra. This is not about the temple being completed. This is simply about them starting to build the foundation. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments, that's why I got my best shirt on, and the trumpets and the Levites with cymbals took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord. 
And many of the older priests and Levites and family heads wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise. Some things haven't changed. And the sound was heard far away. That's just the foundation, just the beginning. And what went on was the completion of the temple and alongside the completion of the temple, Haggai talks to us about a a new fear, a new reverence of the Lord that was coming to the people. God was doing a new thing, not just in their buildings, but a new thing in their hearts. And a whole nation was turning back to God. It was a tremendous sense of God moving again in a mighty way. It was one of those wish-you-were-there moments as God did something new and profound and something so concrete both in the nation and within the people that everybody could see. Only God could have done that. That was God at work. But hey, by the time we get to Malachi, 50, 100 years later, those great events are only a distant memory. Malachi's present reality bore little resemblance now to those glory days I was just talking about. Now by Malachi's time, worship, as we'll see next week, had become dull and routine. Moral standards had significantly eroded. And the reality of God working powerfully among his people was an event of yesteryear, of yesterday. You see, Malachi is speaking to a generation of people for whom the closest they have got to a mighty move of God is to have been told about it by their parents or by their grandparents. They were in a second generation scenario. The first generation had been part of this exciting move. They'd known God uh, do amazing things. But now all they could do was listen to the stories. Now all they could do was hear about how it once was. They were in an in-between time. I grew up in a time like this. The beginning of the last century in uh, Wales, there was a revival, the 1904 Welsh Revival. And there are two things that remained as living proof that God had moved in a mighty way, bringing tens, hundreds of thousands of people to him in a matter of months. The first was the massive churches that were around. You go to a little village and there could be a a massive church at each end of the same street in this little village. Many of them are now closed. But I would visit them as a young preacher. In fact, I'm still a young preacher. But I'd visit them then as a young preacher. And it was the same. Vast sanctuaries like this one. This is an Ikea Baptist church. They used to come like this, flat pack, straight pews, balcony pews, that's just how it was. And churches like this on every corner, once packed with thousands of people whose lives have been transformed by God's power, but now were inhabited usually by just a very small cluster of elderly people. The second living proof was not just the churches but the memories that these elderly folks, some of them, still had. that They were almost passing out of living memory when I was starting to preach. But something like this would, would, would more than one time happen. We'd meet for our service in the side room 
It would have been 10 years or more since they'd used the sanctuary. It was too big. They couldn't afford to repair it. They couldn't afford to heat it. And in the side room, huddled around a Calagas fire, we would have our service. And then at the end of the service, uh, one of the elder statesmen, one of the pillars of the, of the church would say to me, come, let me show you around. And he'd take me into a sanctuary just like this one. The mothballed smell would greet you as you came in. Clearly no one had been in it for any meaningful purpose for a decade or more. And he'd, and he'd look, he'd go, this was full. And suddenly his eyes would light up and with uncharacteristic energy, he would say, I remember when people were standing at the back and sitting on the windowsills. I can remember when ten young people were baptised and, and the preacher said, any more and ten more, just in the clothes they were wearing, came forward and were baptised because they were convicted of, of their need for God at that moment. And standing in this great space, I, I could just see in my mind's eye the, the pictures that this man's memory were painting and then suddenly crash back into reality. The door swings. And you see a few elderly folk, all that are left, the remnant, walk out the door and shuffle their way home after another Sunday. Their experience of God moving in a mighty way, now a distant memory. This is the situation that Malachi finds himself in. The mighty move of God, now just a memory. And it's not just true, of course, about uh, the Welsh revival, but it's a, a reality that's always been, isn't it, with God's people. Finding yourself in an in-between time where the reality of God moving in power is either something that people tell you about because it happened before you were born, or it's something people tell you about because it happened in, or it's happening now in another part of the world. And all we can do is listen to the stories, but it's not our experience. That's the church of our nation right now, isn't it? We hear about God moving in incredible ways. Either in times past, which he's certainly done in our land, or in other parts of the world. But for us, we only hear about it. It's not our experience. So did you know about Korea today? The largest church in Seoul has 750,000 members and one million Christians climb a mountain to pray for revival every day. Or in China, where the conversion rate is estimated at 25,000 per day. Or in Argentina, where one man's ministry over the last few years has led over two million people to Christ. Or in Brazil, where one church has 25,000 members. That's not bad. Hello, you tracking with me? That's 25,000 members, that's not bad. But their church plants have got 1.2 million members in. Wow. And the pastor goes, we're living in revival. More than 30% confess Jesus as Lord. Did you know that a few years ago, 740,000 people attended six celebration services? Now, what's unusual about this is they were Baptist services. Can you imagine that? 740,000 at a Baptist service. This is in northeast India, in Nagaland, to celebrate the 125th anniversary of Baptist mission there. And did you know that the then Baptist World Alliance preacher, uh, President Fanini, preached and and 12,000 people came to Christ? That's the Baptist convention, for heaven's sake. And so from around the world, we could recount right now, today, 
what God is doing. But we only hear about them, don't we? They're not our experience. It's not that this country hasn't known God move like that. It's just that he's not doing it now. We're in an in-between time. In other parts of the world, there are significant manifestations of signs and wonders, which the Bible says. The Bible says you're going to go out and, uh, and, and to aid your evangelism as much as to express the love of God. Signs will accompany the word that's preached. Praise God when we see it. But we don't see it every day. Or in the way perhaps God's word leads us to expect. And so, the manifest presence of God in revival-type ways, as you can and will read about through those Old Testament readings, and as we can read about in the early church, and as we can read about through the history of uh, the world, in various places around the world right now, but it's not here. We're in an in-between time. And the question is this. Are you happy to stay in one of those? Hello? Hello? It'll be a hassle. 12,000 people at that baptism. That's a lot of baptisms. That's a long service. It'll be a hassle. You know, we might have to come to church more than just once a week. Are you happy to be in an in-between time? Malachi wasn't. That's what stirred his heart. He said, I don't want it to stay like this. The book of Malachi is for you and me. Because it addresses my situation. It addresses our situation. That's the context. So what's the core? What's Malachi on about? What's the message? Malachi's call to the people is this. You might think that God moving in mighty ways is now just a thing of the past. And the people of Malachi's day did. And we might be guilty of the same. Malachi's call to the people is that you might think that your dull worship and empty sacrifices are all that you can hope for now. You might think, to put it into our context, that one new Christian a year or a month or six months is all you can expect now. Malachi writes to them and says, you might think that the glory days are over. Those ways are gone and gone for good. But Malachi's message goes like this. God can and God will, but they must get ready. God can and God will, but they must get ready. They must get ready to seek him in a fresh, a new way. They must turn their hearts to him like they haven't turned before. And so the key verse that unlocks the book, chapter 3, verse 1, then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple which picks up the promise in Haggai a few uh, years previous, which picks up, we'll come to that in a moment, which uh, is echoed just a few verses later in Malachi. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. And then that promise from Haggai that Malachi is saying can and still and will come true. God says, I'll shake all nations, the desire of all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory. You need to understand that the idea of filling God's house with his glory was that it would be a light that drew all nations to know him and to love him and to serve him. Suddenly, the Lord you're seeking 
will come and picks up so many of the promises and the encouragements from the Old Testament. Will you not revive us that your people may rejoice in you? Come, let us return to the Lord. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. That great verse from Habakkuk. I've heard, I've heard about what you do, Lord, in times past, and I've heard about what you're doing all around the world. And I stand in awe. I hear about 1.2 million in church plants from a Brazilian church. And I stand in awe at your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time. Make them know. And so here it is. Suddenly, the Lord you're seeking will come to his temple. And that's where a new move of God begins. When we say we're not happy with the status quo. We're not happy with it like this. We're longing for God to do what only God can do. And we begin to seek Him because we're so dissatisfied with the way that it is. A godly dissatisfaction about the way things are compared to how we understand they could be. A restlessness that there is so much more of God for us to know and experience. A hunger to see God move in mighty ways that our friends, that our neighbours, that our work colleagues, that this community comes to Christ in a profound way. Someone might have said a little something that created some noise out of their mouth, which, which gave me the indication that anyone in this room might be remotely interested in that happening. That would have been okay. Sorry for the level of sarcasm. A godly dissatisfaction that church is more than services, midweek meetings, small groups, but a people through whom the presence of God is manifestly displayed so the whole community is transformed. And we long for that. Don't we? And it's out of that longing, out of that longing, that this seeking that Malachi is talking about comes. As Hosea put it, sow for yourselves righteousness, for it's time. This is the time now to seek the Lord until he comes. And as we shall see, this seeking in Malachi is about a whole life response. A seeking that touches every aspect of our lives. It, it won't always be comfortable. Don't come week by week to be comforted. This is not an easy read. It's tough stuff for us in these pages. A health warning. You can read on ahead and see where it might hurt. It'll hurt all of us in different places, in different ways. A seeking that touches every aspect of our lives, but with the promise. Hey, see. See, says God, if I will not be faithful. See, it tests me. I, see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven so you haven't got enough room for all the blessing. But beware. Beware. Beware of the enemy who will sow seeds of doubt in our minds even now. What's the point of this godly discontent? What's the point of this seeking? Nothing like that's going to happen here. There's no one in this room that hasn't thought like that. I don't think. Including me. Nothing like that could happen here. In our lives, in our church, in our day. Burlington? 
Ipswich? I can't believe it. And it's why Malachi begins where he does. My third point, the claim of Malachi. I've loved you, says the Lord. I've always loved you, and I always will. Why is this so important? This is so important because when you find yourself in an in-between time, it frequently brings with it a crisis in confidence about the love of God. And that's what's happening here. The people of Malachi's day are going, well, does God still love us? How have you loved us? If you look at the rest of verse 2. Convince us. Show us that your love is real because we're not sure. Lack of confidence or assurance in the love of God is so often a product of these in-between times because God seems more remote and more distant. And the people of Malachi's day, they looked around and they go, well, the worship is dull. Our priests are rubbish. Morality's down. Nothing much is happening. People don't care about God here anymore. Perhaps God doesn't love us anymore. God's deserted us. He's left us. He doesn't love us like he loved our forefathers. Look at what he did for our parents or our grandparents. If he loved us, he'd be doing that for us. Perhaps he doesn't love us anymore. And that's not a reaction that we are unfamiliar with, is it? As individual Christians, when we hear of someone really going on with God, perhaps achieving something great, we see someone for whom the Christian life seems to be one great success after another, find me that person. Uh, And we look at our own lives in comparison, and we go, well, I feel so dry, I feel so empty, so powerless. Perhaps God doesn't love me like he loves them. Won't be anyone here who hasn't thought like that either. I don't think. You look at others, they seem to have so much. They they seem so close to God and you don't. They seem so full of joy and you don't. They seem to find it easy to read their Bible and you don't. They can witness to everybody before breakfast and you can't. And you go, perhaps God loves them more than he loves me. Malachi's people were going, perhaps God loved them more than he loves us. We can feel like that as a church. How come in Kyrgyzstan, a church that started 17 years ago, now has 11,000 people, our church has been going for 157 years, and we're glad we're 200? Perhaps God doesn't love us like he loves them. And deep inside, that insecurity. And that's what they were facing. That's where they were. How come we hear about God who's done these amazing things, yet nothing's happening here? They're getting quite angry with Malachi. How come God has promised to fill his temple and we've seen him do it in the past, but glory here? Can't see it. Unless they knew in their hearts that God loved them like he loved those others, they would never be able to seek him with all of their hearts for him to do the same thing. Can you see that? They could never really believe that God would do it for them unless they really knew in their hearts that God loved them just the same as he loved those others. And so he says, I love you. And he uses Jacob and Esau. He takes them right back to their beginnings. 
Two brothers in Genesis, the first book of the Bible. God is reminding them of their history. This is covenant language. It's really important. God loved Jacob and hated Esau. That's what it says. And we think in terms of emotion. This is covenant language about God choosing to draw a people to himself through which he would win the whole world, be a light to the nations. That was the plan. And God says, you can trace my constant love from Jacob right through the history of Israel. I've loved you. I rescued you from Egypt. Remember that? You see, using this language would immediately bring to to, to mind their history. They were full of their history. You remember how I loved you and rescued you from Egypt? Remember how I loved you and got you through the Red Sea? Remember how I loved you and got you into the Promised Land? Remember how I loved you and gave you a king? Remember how your borders were were larger than any other nation? Remember how even when you turned your back on me and you ended up in exile, I loved you enough to bring you back? Remember how I loved you to rebuild the temple, to rebuild your city, to rebuild your nation, to rebuild your lives? I've loved you. And Malachi is saying, you've got to understand, God loves you still. Nothing's changed. Chapter 2 of Malachi, I, the Lord, do not change. He does not change in his love for his people. So gently and firmly, God begins by saying, despite your current situation, despite the way you feel, despite the way it looks, I have loved you, I will love you, and today I still love you. I am with you. I am for you. This was the single greatest hope for Malachi's people. And you know what? The single greatest hope for this church is that God still loves us. Thank you. Single greatest hope is that He still loves us. So, Malachi's people are going, that's all right, Malachi, but if God still loves us, then he must still want to do those great things among us. But why isn't he? Where is he? If God still loves us, Burlington, where is he? Why don't we see him moving in these mighty ways? Why do we only get little glimpses of which we're thrilled about? Don't get me wrong. Where is he? What's he up to? For all the promise of Malachi, they needed to hear something that was painful. And so might we. Their present condition was not that God had stopped loving them. It was not that God had turned away, but that they had. They had turned away. Their love for God had waned. When others are growing and we're not, when others are blessed and we're not, The human tendency is to apportion blame to anyone but ourselves and especially God. God doesn't love us. Look at the mess we're in. Malachi says, you've got to understand. You have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. And still the promise, return to me and I will return to you. They were the reason the glory had faded. They were the reason the reality had gone. And it's always the same. Why do great revivals come to an end? Does God get bored with thousands of conversions? Does God get bored with the church being so ablaze that the powers of darkness are pushed back in communities and laws are made on the basis of kingdom morality again? God get bored of that? 
Does God get weary of dispensing his power in and through his people? Does God not care about a second generation? Does he not love them as much as back in those days? Did not God love me and my contemporaries as much as he loved my grandfather's generation when revival came? The fire of revival wanes because the people of God turn away. Preachers think it's all about them. That's what happened. Or congregations forget about righteousness and purity and holiness. The Welsh revival ended so abruptly. Why? Because the people started arguing and bickering. Can you imagine something so pathetic? Sorry, I said that with a bit of conviction, really, didn't I? Can you imagine? Thousands of people are getting saved and they start arguing with each other. Whoosh. Finished. Over. Gone. Doesn't God love us anymore? No. They turned. Their hearts were hard. The love had gone. The fire was going out. So it's addressed to a people who are beginning to seek the Lord. They needed to know that God still loved them, that God was still on their side. And that if they returned, would God return to them? Yes. Faster and more powerfully than they could ever imagine. Hey, could God do it here in Ipswich? It's just as likely that God would do it here as that he would do it in a grotty valley in South Wales where he moved in such power that hard, hard coal miners thousands of feet underground would stop to pray and to sing and to weep over their sins. History books talk of them crowding prayer meetings until 3am in the morning, then washing, eating breakfast and returning to work. Just as likely here. Will you pray with me that God would do it again? That we wouldn't just stand in awe of what he does, but we'd know them in our day and in our time. Let's stand and sing. Shall we more love, more power, more of you in my life? And I'll seek your face with all of my heart and all of my might. I'll worship you with all of my strength, for you are our Lord. More love, more power.